word in the book of uh, Exodus, chapter 2 and 3. God's name revealed, Exodus uh, 2, 23, so just the last little bit of Exodus 2 and continuing through verse 15 of chapter 3. The words will be on screen. I'll be reading from the NIV version. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush, and Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed heard the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this is the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose the Israelites, I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes you have to get to know someone's, you have to know someone's name to really get to know them. And sometimes you don't. Uh, when my wife Sarah and I lived in Laos for many years, we found that actually you didn't always have to know someone's name to really know them. In, in Lao culture, relationships are more important than names. Now, 
that sounds good and all, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, you, you learn that it really, really matters. I, I lived with a host family for the first few months in Laos. I, I was studying the language, and I lived with a family. I had three brothers, uh, four brothers and, and a mother, and uh, they took care of me and helped me learn the language. And I pretty, learned, pretty quickly learned to call my mother Meh, which means mother. In fact, I still don't remember her actual name because Meh was her title to me. It's what I was supposed to call her. And then there was my older brother, Et, who I was supposed to call I, which means older brother. And then there were the three younger brothers that I was supposed to call Nong, which means younger brother. And if you're getting a little confused, that's all right. I was pretty confused for a few weeks, too. It, it took a while before it clicked in my head that not only did I have to call them a name based on their age, but I also had to call myself something different based on our relationship. So to my mother, I was supposed to call myself Luke, child. But to my older brother, I was supposed to call myself Nong because I was his younger brother. And uh, to my younger brothers, I was supposed to call myself I because I was their older brother. And it gets even more complicated when you're out and, out and about in the world and you're trying to figure out this person and how old are they and what should I call them and what should I call myself when I'm talking to them. But, uh, and it was mostly based on age as far as I could tell, but sometimes social status figured into that as well. And it got pretty complicated, and it never hurt to call someone a title of respect, maybe a, a, to call them grandfather or aunt to show your respect for them. But it could backfire if you called someone a title that was way older than they were supposed to be. Now, Moses is in that sort of conundrum with God. What is God's name? What is he supposed to call God? Because God calls out to Moses from the burning bush, and, and Moses asks, who is this God. And God gives him the name, I am, and the relationship. I am the God of your father, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why does God do that here, and what does it mean for us? Well, this moment in Scripture matters. It matters for the relationship between God and Moses and God and his people because it's the beginning of the great freedom story of the Old Testament. God sets his people free by the power of his name to live in relationship with God. But the story begins with silence and with suffering, because God is silent at the beginning of this story. God's people have been crying out in their slavery, and over 400 years have passed since God last spoke to his people. Uh, remember last week when God's presence came to Jacob at the bottom of the ladder and stood right beside him and said, I will be with you. I will give you land and descendants God spoke to Jacob only two more times in his life. And, and the last time, in Genesis 46, is right before Jacob goes down to Egypt to meet his long-lost son, Joseph. And God promises him again, I will give you land and descendants, and I will bring you back to this land. And, and oh, you're going to die there, and your son Joseph will close your eyes. And then the people of Israel grow numerous in the land, and 400 years pass, uh, 400 years of good times and suffering and slavery, and uh, they, they become this great in numbers people, but a poor and oppressed nation. The, the Egyptians feel threatened by them. They're a national security threat to the Egyptians. If a, a, a foreign army comes in, they're afraid the Israelites will turn and attack them. So they force them into hard labor. They make them slaves, and, and, and these slaves build major cities for the Egyptians, and God is silent. 
Of course, as oppressed people often do, they do resist however they can. Uh, there's this, they keep themselves separate and different from the Egyptians. They maintain their stories and their language and their traditions. And when Pharaoh orders the killing of the male babies, there's these two women, these two midwives who stand up and say, no, we will not do that. And so they cleverly find a way around the power of Pharaoh. And, and God is silent for 400 years, but God is not absent. At least for some of the Israelites, especially these women and others, they remember God. And it says in verse 23 that the Israelites cried out to God in their slavery. They cried out to God. They knew God. They needed help and they cried out. And maybe they remembered the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I hope they did. Maybe they told them to their children generation after generation. Maybe they knew that their God was faithful and would be faithful again. And whatever it is, we see here that God heard them. Listen to verse 24. It says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now notice those verbs. Notice the things God is doing there. God heard. God remembered. God looked or saw them. And then God was concerned or knew them. And we'll see those same verbs show up a little bit later when God speaks to Moses. But, but first, where is Moses in this story? Moses is on the run. Moses, that baby who was drawn up out of the water, he was saved from the waters of death in Egypt and given a new life. That Moses is on the run out of Egypt, away from the Israelites, into the desert. And he's taken on a new life and a new name, and he's gotten married, and he's tending sheep. Uh, What a change from someone who grew up all coddled and rich, and yet he is out in the desert. He is with people who are different from him, and Moses is not just in the desert, but he is on the far side of the wilderness. The wilderness is the place where people go, where they run to when they want to meet God. And Moses is in the wilderness, and he is there is he looking for God? We, we don't know. But he's gone as far as he can go from civilization. Is he waiting for a word from God? I hope. But there's no indication in his life story up to this point that, that he has uh, any kind of relationship with God. Moses doesn't know that God has heard his people's cry. He doesn't know that Horeb is God's mountain. In fact, when a bur- bush bursts into flame in front of him, and doesn't burn up. He doesn't get all religious and start worshiping. No, he, he gets curious. He was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little closer and see what's going on here. And that is when he meets God. Now, I want to pause a bit here and turn the camera back to us because if we were in Moses' spot, if we were in the story, uh, where would we be? Would we be in Moses' sandals? Uh, Would we be with the groaning Israelites? Would we be uh, with uh, people, uh, other people in the story? Most of us probably wouldn't call ourselves slaves. We're not the most hurting, groaning people out there. But every one of us probably has something in our lives that, uh, that might require some groaning or crying out to God. Maybe you've worked hard all your life and you, your body feels like it's breaking down and you can't go on with the pain. Maybe it feels like your life has been one setback after another. Maybe you've always been working for that one employer, that one boss for your whole life and you just can't seem to get a break. Maybe you've been through a time of illness and your body and your spirit seem ready to give up. That's the place of groaning that the Israelites are in. 
They knew God, or at least they knew about God. And like many of us, they'd heard the stories of God's faithfulness to their ancestors. They'd heard the stories of Scripture. They, they, they told the stories of these brave midwives who showed up to, to, uh, to show that God was still active. And maybe they responded to God with their groaning and their crying out in slavery because that was the right thing to do. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise that the most faithful thing to do when your body and your spirit are crushed is to cry out to God. And that's what the Psalms are for. The cries in the presence of a faithful God who hears them. And the second part of a faithful response is to keep on keeping on, to keep doing the things that sustain your faith, to keep reading Scripture and joining with others in worship and uh, praying and serving. And though it may seem that God is silent in that time of groaning, God is never not at work. God is active. God hears the cries of his people, and God will respond. God will meet you there. And like the Israelites, when we cry out to God in distress, God hears. Now maybe you're more like Moses. Moses ran away from the troubles. Moses ran away from his fellow Israelites. He lived in luxury and he didn't suffer like his fellow Israelites. And he tried to help them as best he could. But when he defended an Israelite slave from an Egyptian slave master, it backfired on him and he got exiled out of Egypt. And Moses was done with all of it. He, he fled to the desert and started a new life. Maybe he didn't entirely give up hope. He, he was out in the wilderness, after all, the right place for meeting God. It may have taken years, even decades, 40 years, before he was at the right place to meet and the right time to meet God. So where are you in this story? Are you out there with Moses? Are you on the run? Are you in the place where God might speak? Because God meets Moses there. He meets him on the far side of the wilderness, on the, at the mountain of God. And God comes in flames of fire that do not burn up the bush. And Moses goes closer to investigating God speaks. For the first time in 400 years, God speaks and God says, Moses, Moses. And, and God calls him by the name that reminds Moses that he was once rescued up out of the waters of death. God reminds him of his faithfulness. God calls him by name and Moses answers, Here am I. Hineni, here am I. Remember just a few weeks ago when Abraham answered, here am I, to God. Hineni means ready or at your service or I'm here. It means a relationship with the asker that is full of such trust that you'll do whatever they ask even before you knew what it is. Like Abraham, Moses is fully present before God. And their dialogue goes back and forth over uh, two long chapters into chapters 3 and 4. God tells Moses, don't come any closer. And presumably Moses obeys. And then God says, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. And the ground is holy not because it's special, but because God is present. God makes that place holy. And to this day, we do not know where this story happened. Like Judaism, Christianity is, is all about God's holiness, not about any particular holy place. It is God's presence that makes that place or that moment holy. And then God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God reveals himself by relationship. 
This is the same God that spoke to his ancestors over 400 years before. And Moses must know the stories, or, uh, so he should know this God. And, and he does because he responds appropriately. He hides his face. He is afraid of God's holiness. And then God lays out the problem and the plan. Now notice those God-active verbs again. God sees his people's misery. God hears their cries from slavery. God knows their suffering. And all of those verbs are the ones we heard earlier in verses 24 and 25. And that fourth verb, God remembers, God remembers, shows up in God's plan. God comes down to rescue them. God will save them from the Egyptians, and he will bring them out to the promised land. And that is how God remembers, through action. God saves, God rescues, God redeems his people. Uh, Some commentators say this is the great Easter moment of the Old Testament. This is the moment that changes everything that comes after. God's people were slaves, and now God is starting his great rescue plan with them. But there's one wrinkle. Moses. God has laid out his plan, and Moses seems on board until this moment. God says directly to Moses, so now you go, go, and uh, tell, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And here, suddenly, Moses has a bunch of objections. In fact, he has at least five objections in the next two chapters. Uh, we don't have time to go into all of them. We'll just cover the first two. But uh, Moses first says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Now, one commentator says that Moses' here am I pretty quickly turns into a who am I. He was ready, but now he resists. And God's response is simple. It's the same response God gave to Jacob at the bottom of that stairway. I will be with you. It's God's promise of presence. It's God's promise that God's reality is only thinly separated from our reality and that God is always breaking in and through to redeem and rescue his people. And Moses gets a sign from God, though the sign isn't exactly helpful. It's the sign that this will happen, that God will be with him. That's the sign. God will bring his people out of Egypt to worship on his mountain. That's the sign. This will later be called Mount Sinai, where God gives the law to Moses. That's the sign. And the sign along the way is that God will be with Moses. Moses will not be alone. And the sign at the end is that God will bring them back to this place. But Moses isn't done with his objections here. He he escalates his demands. Now he says, suppose if the Israelites, uh, I go to them and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? See, Moses' question, who am I, has turned into another question. Who are you? He wants to know God's name. He wants to know God's very identity. And no one has heard God's name up until this point in the Bible. See, God has come to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac many times, but never by name. Now, we've heard people call God various names. They've called God El, or Elohim, or El Shaddai, or El Roy, the God who sees, a God Almighty. But now here, God gives his name to Moses. And he says, I am who I am. Now, this name is so mysterious, it's so untranslatable that the Jewish Bible doesn't even try to translate it. It just says, Echye Asher Echye. I am who I am, or I am who I will be. 
And there's more to say about God's name here than we could ever say in one sermon, but I do want to point out three things quickly, which I I get from Pastor Stan Mast. Uh, First, God's name comes through a series of questions. Who am I? God says, I will be with you. Uh, Who are you? I am who I am. God is saying that it doesn't matter who Moses is. God's being, God's will, God's faithfulness is more than enough to accomplish what God promises. Second, God's name is. God's name is. God's very name is being. And it may be impossible to translate, but the very essence of God's being is existence. God is. God is before all. God is uncreated. God is uncaused. God is, as some philosophers say, the great cause, the being that brings all being into being. And anytime we try to make sense of this, we end up in tongue twisters and brain twisters, and we don't quite understand it. But God is. And third, most importantly, God's name is revealed in relationship. See, God directs Moses and his people to look back at history. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, God's story is more important than God's very essence. We can know God through God's actions, through God's redemptive work in and through his people. Now God, the the great and awesome and incomprehensible God, chooses to be in relationship with people who will again and again and again disappoint God. And yet God is faithful from generation to generation. God's name, the Lord, in in capital letters in the NIV, is, is this shortened version of I am who I am. And maybe the best way to translate that phrase that I've found is this. I will be who I am, and I am who I will be. I will be who I am, says God, and I am who I will be. See, God's name is revealed through God's story. And God's story is revealed through action. This week I read a story about a man who puts God's story of freedom into action. Uh, His name is Father Daniel Aliet. And he's lived for many years in Molenbeek, this neighborhood of Brussels in Belgium, a neighborhood full of migrants and refugees. And he serves and lives with these migrants for the past 30-some years, people from North Africa and from the Middle East. He welcomes them into his home and into his church, like Jesus did, he says. And two years ago, he celebrated his last Mass in this church, and he retired at the age of 77. And when he retired, his bishop wanted to turn his church into a museum. Now, Father Daniel protested. He said, that's not how you connect with people. I've been to the pyramids of Egypt, he says. They're very impressive, but they did not make me want to worship King Tut. So instead, he turned his church into a migrant shelter. And every day he goes to visit the people who are sleeping on mattresses on the floor of the church and to help people, to meet them where they are, to serve them. Uh, People who he says are like modern-day slaves on a, a journey for freedom. He became a priest to serve those in need. And that is God's story in action. Now, in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is questioned by the religious authorities. What are you doing and why are you doing it? They accused him of being a Samaritan, this outcast, this social foreigner. They accused him of being demon-possessed. They accused him of, of thinking he was greater than Abraham. They didn't understand his mission or the signs he was doing. 
How could anyone be greater than Abraham, the one who God made his covenant promises with? And then Jesus says that he knows the Father better than they do and, and, and that Abraham looked forward to this day of the Savior. And they accuse him of, of thinking he's greater than Abraham. And then Jesus says this in John eight fifty eight. He says, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Now this is one of the many times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am. I am he. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in all of these, Jesus is claiming that he is God. He is the I am, the Lord. And just like God's name is revealed in relationship, God's name is most perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is God's name, made flesh, incarnate, dwelling among us. He is the word incarnate, embodied, the word among the people. And that is who God is. That is God's very being, God's very nature and name revealed to us in the person of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Because just like God's name is about to be revealed in God's great rescue plan with the Israelites out of Egypt, God's name is revealed in God's rescue of all creation out of the clutches of sin and death and evil into the way of life. Because God is saving and God shows who God is through, through his actions, through history, through relationships. And the same goes for us. Our, our actions show that we are followers of Jesus. Our, our actions of faithfulness when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Our, our stories show that we know God and that God has always known us. And we know God not in the abstract philosophical idea of being, but in these real relationships of love and flesh with people who know God and who love God and who speak of what God has done in Scripture and in their lives. And that is God's big story. That's the story that we tell together when we give witness to what God has done. And it's the story we tell in worship every week. And it's the story we tell in the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, your grace is beyond measure, and we, we, we are in awe at your name, the I Am, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And your name revealed in the person of Jesus who shows us how to act as you would. God, we remember the ways that you have been faithful in our lives for walking with us in the shadow of death, for sustaining us through the joy of life, for your Spirit's guidance through moments of difficulty and decision. And we trust and know that you are working good in and through us by your Spirit, that your actions in Scripture and in our lives and in the stories of those we love are the revelation of your name and your very being. We want to know you more, God through your Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit at work within us, that we may be people who live and tell your story, people who act in ways that give and speak your name in the world. We praise you and thank you for how you are at work among us, and we ask that you continually sustain and strengthen us for this work, for this love, for this name. Amen.
We'll continue in worship before our God, and we'll give the screens a little time to catch up with us as we sing a song that speaks of God's name. I invite you to open your Psalter hymnals, the gray ones in the pew, to number 621, and we'll sing the God of Abraham praise, Psalter hymnal number 621.